Hello everyone, welcome to the Bummy Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kim, your host and producer of this show. I hope that you're all staying safe and well during the COVID-19 crisis. As our Asian Pacific Islander communities are under attack from racial and xenophobic violence, it is now more urgent than ever to be in solidarity and support one another through this difficult period. It is also important to use these moments to stand with other marginalized communities who are struggling. In the meantime, I am continuing the second season's theme of 1975. I interviewed Panisa Pub for this episode. Panisa is a good friend of mine. She was born and raised in Cambodia before moving to the U.S. several years ago to attend college. In the last five years, she has been working for the National Cambodian Heritage Museum in Chicago as a resident artist and musician. Panisa has been singing traditional Cambodian music ever since she was a little kid and we talk about her inspiration to use music as her way of healing, and then healing elder survivors of the Khmer Rouge genocide. She spoke finally about her relationship with her mother, who passed away when she was living in the U.S., and the lessons that she passed on to her. We talked a great deal about her upbringing, and the work that she's doing in the Cambodian community here in Chicago. Special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnamese-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or on Instagram at lawrenceandargyle or on their Facebook page. Randy from the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. So I'm joined here today with a good friend of mine who I've known the past couple of years. Uh, her name is Punisa Pove, and she is a resident artist, musician with the National Cambodian Heritage Museum, and also with um, uh, also has done a lot of work with the Cambodian Association of Illinois, which they are currently in the same building. And it really gives me a lot of pleasure to bring her on. And this is a person who I have tremendous uh, respect for the past um, several years and what she's done for the museum and what she's done for the Khmer American community in Chicago and also across uh, the U.S. So, uh, Bonisa, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. So, again, thank you so much. So, what I would like to begin uh, by asking is, uh, so this season is revolving around the 1975 theme. It is the 45-year anniversary of the end of the Vietnam-Laos Civil War. It was also the beginning of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, which unfortunately led to the deaths of 2 million Cambodians. But when you hear the year 1975, uh, 45 years later to this day, what do you think about? Okay. So first of all, I was born and raised in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. So 1975 to me, it was Cambodia in a dark time when like, you know, a lot of people were separated from their families and uh, the loss of their loved one. And also we had like lost a lot of educators and artists and many more people. Mm. When we think of the Khmer Rouge and the gravity of how horrible that tragedy is we think about who it affects in our own community within our own family Uh, but for you even though you were not born in 1975 you were born much much after the much after that tragedy but your parents and your grandparents and family members that were older than you uh, were affected by that uh, by that era, and I was wondering if you're able to share um, part of uh, your family's survival from the Khmer Rouge. Okay, so um, my grandmother and my mom was the were the survival, and my grandmother she was um, living in the province Kampong Chenang and. My mom was six years old back then and she was separated from her uh, mother and 
I kept hearing that story, you know, all the time during, you know, um, living with my mom. And uh, it was very sad that, you know, a five years old uh, kid has to live away, far away from uh, her mom. And my grandmother, she told me a story of how she lost her baby boy due to the Khmer Rouge uh, soldiers. The, um, that there is a time that she went to work in the field, in the rice field. And when she came back um, to, you know, see her baby boy, he, um, he died. And then the people, uh, you know, that were watching him told my grandmother that the Khmer Rouge soldier keep, you know, like teasing the baby by shaking the hammocks till he, you know, like make him cry and cry until he out of breath. So oh. he, yeah, so it was um, horrible. I mean, it's very, I think it's a traumatized experience to my grandmother. So since then, she was very um, like mad and angry towards the Khmer Rouge. And she, she you know, kind of um, very stubborn towards them. So they kept putting her in like, you know, prison uh, all the times. Yeah, because she doesn't really listen to the Khmer Rouge. Mm. What do you think might have saved her from it? Because I know any kind of disobedience towards uh, the Khmer Rouge at any point, it could be something like, I don't want to do it, for example, could lead you to being killed. What do you think might have saved her? So, besides, you know, being like stubborn to the Khmer Rouge, um, she also hit some of the Western medicines since she, you know, know a lot about the medicines and she kept the medicine at her house and and then one of her family members was her cousin came and captured her, you know, kind of like put her in the jail, right? So I think that time, like, they actually want to kill her already. So um, they tried, they warned her a couple of times and then one day they decided to kill her, wanted, you know, kind of plan to kill her. Mm. So, that, but that time it was chaos when they wanted to kill her secretly, you know, it was like there's a bombing going on. So she was able to escape. Oh, wow. Yes. That's unbelievable. And where was your mom and all of this? I'm, I, I believe she must have been really, really little. Yes. She was um, in another, like the children camp, so she probably don't know about all of this mm. until her she... mom told her the story. Wow. And how was she able to find uh, your mother? You, you mean my grandmother? Yes. Um, so it's in the province, so like she would know where the children camp at and, you know, ask around from to, you know, like other relatives, if they know where my mom's or my aunties are at. So my grandmother, uh, you know, kind of like, fortunately got to meet all her children, you know, except the baby boy that um, was, you know, killed during the um, Khmer Rouge soldier that was teasing him, remember that, yeah. Mm. So. It's just unbelievable of how close to death your grandma was and how fortunate she was to have survived um, the, po the, the possible the, um, the executions that were supposed to be carried out against her. And also the fact that your mom also survived too. And here you are, um, born and in Cambodia, what do you remember uh, most when you grew up as a child? And what was your experience like growing up in Cambodia during post-Khmer uh, Rouge? After the Khmer Rouge? Yes, after the Khmer Rouge, because obviously you were born um, well after. Yeah. So I was like growing up around uh, people, you know, like they would tell me that you should think about of yourself first before you think of others because we are in no position to help others. We are too poor to help others. And I was a kid back then and I thought like, then yeah, I shouldn't worry about the, the poor. I shouldn't feel sympathy, sympathize to, you know, to them at all. 
because mm. like since I'm also poor, you know who I am to sympathize other. So I have no like that emotion of being good or kind to another. Yeah. And but growing up, my grandmother and my mom, they actually taught me a lot. And they actually did not say anything much, but their action inspired me, you know, to be kind to other people. Um, like my grandmother once said, you don't have to be rich to help others. Mm. Yeah. So for what I kind of uh, understand um, now that after the Khmer Rouge regime, it kind of make people more uh, selfish. Like, okay, I have to ignore this to survive. I have to ignore this to survive, right? Like during the Khmer Rouge, like, okay, I have to ignore this if I want to survive the Khmer Rouge, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so even after the Khmer Rouge regime, you know, people still have that mindset. Okay, I, I have to just worry about myself, not, you know, care about other people. Yeah, and the fact that there was a civil war and during the time of the Khmer Rouge, no one could trust each other. Uh, it, it, it created a culture of distrust and the fact that you couldn't rely on your own neighbors, even your own family members who um, had to say things to save their own lives, but sacrifice their own family members. Like, you know, you hear about children who were taught during the Khmer Rouge that their government comes first before their parents, their family members. So they were forced to have to... Um, spy to spy on their own parents and so i think about how much of that trauma still carries on what it does to the relationships between the people of cambodia and also within the outside world but but mostly like internally within cambodia although that's not an experience that i have but i do see that in uh community spaces uh you know with older survivors who still very much a struggle uh, with the trauma, but also their interactions within their own peers, right? Um, I don't know if that is some as an experience that you have always, that you've also seen in America, but I know uh, when you talk about growing up, uh, it's, it's a very important point to uh, share, especially uh, what that was like growing up in the 90s of uh, Cambodia when uh, even though it's only been like at that time over a decade the civil war still didn't end until like I think between Vietnam and Cambodia until like 1989 so there's still so much turmoil uh, during that period Um, and it's still being felt today uh, on a political and uh, social level but yeah in terms of your own relationship with your grandma and your mother. I, I know that those are two people that you were very particularly close to, and and you became you became uh, really into music. You really got into music, I should say. And I was wondering what actually inspired you to start singing and start uh, performing and start playing. What inspired me to play and singing? Yeah. So, like, I was born and raised in Cambodia. So, you know, I have, like, a lot of responsibility, you know, in the family and have to support my family and have to support myself going to school. And, you know, I I was bullied as a kid. And... It was hard and, you know, I sometimes I had a time that I cry a lot. I feel very lonely, you know, in a way. But I kept, you know, telling myself, you know, to keep on going. And life was hard, right? So music actually came to save me from that moment. It it brings me comfort and um when I listened to Cambodian classical music the first time, it was beautiful. It sounds amazing. It just bring me back in time to the glorious um, uh, ancient time when Cambodia was, you know, in peace and 
was, Cambodia was, you know, known to the world. Um, so, like, I was thinking, like, okay, in the present time, my life was not easy. It was hard. But I always, you know, think of, like, music as my friends, as something to comfort me. And that's why I keep continuing to play the music. Was music very big in your own family uh, growing up? Were your family, um, were your family members singers, musicians? So I grew up uh, as like not knowing uh, anyone in my family that um, are a singer or a musician. So I, but I was kind of really into singing a lot. And my my dad often played a cassette player at home, so I caught. I mean, I I actually catch the um the tone the the tune like easily, and um. When I was at the in the elementary school, when I get good grade, my auntie would treat me will treat me to the karaoke, to sing my favorite songs. So it was like the reward for me, you know, and I, I was like great time you know it i had a great childhood i think um but then later on i um i came to the united states i found out that um i have uh, two uncles that are musician and singer oh wow um, one of them is uh, still alive and then another one already passed away during the Khmer Rouge regime mm-hmm. and his name is Taysom but he is one of the um, 60s singer that you know also well known um, that have kind of similar voice to Sensisimut mm, yeah and Sensisimut for those who don't know who he is uh, Sensisimut is one of uh, Cambodia's uh, famous uh, performers um, and he uh, perished along with so many uh, Cambodian artists uh, during the time of the Khmer Rouge. Art has, art uh, back then was seen as a threat to the Khmer Rouge. Uh, a lot of artists, musicians, um, sculptors, martial artists, doctors, lawyers, anyone with a form of intelligence were uh, executed, unfortunately. And to this day, it has taken so many decades to still try to uh, capture part of that spirit that was lost uh, during that period of time. So yes, and also getting back earlier, and you mentioned that you were getting bullied and I was wondering what was it that the kids bullied you for? Um, so I, you know, having kind of growing up in the family where my mom and my dad did not get along very much mm-hmm. and then the other kids you know often making fun of my family that oh her her mom her dad are gonna argue uh like today again or like they're gonna keep arguing every day and then because i am so stupid i'm so dumb like mm-hmm. because i'm a dumb kid like because i'm not um normal they like talk say all of that to me and that in that time i wasn't like sure like i was i was so embarrassed to tell even tell my mom about it because i felt like yeah it's like being dumb it's just embarrassing right someone called you that and also my mom and my dad had like you know the adult time and so i wouldn't want to bother i just always have to kept in myself and that like bullying affect me great greatly you know like it's like yeah, affect my life in a way that um i being become more quiet kid i become more like i don't want to talk because if i talk i'm afraid someone gonna call me dumb or stupid mm. yeah, so i be more like um, very quiet most of the times and when you talk about the bullying that you had to endure and how music has in a way uplifted you uh, to uh, to continue to perform, to sing, to cope with the challenges that you had growing up. Um, when you started performing in front of people, 
what was that like? Um, how old were you when you first performed, by the way? And when you realized that, and also maybe the first question is, when did you realize that you could sing? Oh, so um, I love singing since I was growing up, like I just told you the story. And um, I learned like um, with a, a few uh, singer, like teachers that teach us uh, singing and they didn't think that I have talent in singing at all. Yeah. I was like a bit upset because of, um, you know, I really want to sing very well. But uh, I try to think positive. So most of the time I would like, you know, keep continue singing. And since music comforts me, so I, you know, just, I mean, music comforts me, but singing comforts me even more in a way like um, even though other people don't, things that I cannot, I can sing, it's it's okay as long as I, you know, I feel comfort um, listening to my own voice. And like, for example, like in Cambodia, I, during that time, I had to bite a lot from like very long distance from my home to school. So it was very exhausted to bite, you know, um, from places to places and it's in a very hot weather. So singing kept me, you know, moving forward, even though, um, you know, like I'm so tired, but the, like singing just make me forget the, you know, that I'm exhausted. Mm -hmm. And what instruments uh, did you start playing? And also can you describe the instruments uh, that you play? So I play the Cambodian um, classical instrument called Renit Ai. And Renit Ai is like uh, the xylophone that the key is made from bamboo and it would tie together in the string and has 21 key. Yeah, and it's the main lead instrument in an ensemble called Penpit Ensemble, which all, most all the instruments are the percussion and they're like two different uh, wood wind instrument. Mm. And how often do you practice um, besides uh, besides playing the instruments, but also with singing? Do you do it at the same time? Do you do it separately? How does that work for you? You mean like practice in Cambodia? Uh, when you were practicing in Cambodia. Okay, so I got the opportunity like to sing and play at the same time um, when my classmates did not show up because oh. they have a they have like a class that they had to go so they cannot show up in the music class so I ended up have to take like a singing role and uh, playing music <laughs> at the same time that's when I know how to play and sing at the same time for the um, Cambodian uh, folk dance and classical uh, ballet dance. Yeah. Yeah. And as you got older, you uh, you were on the process of coming to America. And I was wondering what uh, what led your parent, what you fled your family to send you over to America and what was your feelings like about the possibility of living in the United States as a young person? So, like I kind of mentioned, like my family was not in like um, a high status via poor. So I never dream of being, you know, like abroad or studying in the outside of Cambodia. Um, we just only think of you know, what food to eat today, like, you know, um, support our family, and that's it. And never dream far than that, farther than that. But, um, and like, fortunately, I get the scholarship to study in the United States for four years in Iowa. So that's why I come here to the, uh, the United States um, to study. And I just thought, all right, after I finish um, school, I will go back um, you know, help my family and support them, especially my mom, because she's been 
na suffer for a long time, you know, raising me and uh, taking care of the family. But it wasn't easy, you know, come uh, to come here because the, we have to make a, like a very big decision. Um, since I'm like um, one of the person who support the family, so our family will need money, you know, to pay all the bills. And I talked to my mom about it, that if I go to, to the United States, to study, I will not be able to send any money home. And because I cannot work here, it's going to be very difficult. And so surprisingly, my mom, she like, you know, stepped in, like kind of saying, I'll take charge of it. Like, don't worry, focus on your future and I will, you know, Take care of the family, so don't worry. Finish your four years and um, find your good future, and then you know come back. Mm. Um, so I, when I hear that, I was, I, I was actually happy that uh, at least someone you know care for my future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because other parents might only like take advantage or benefit from the the care their kids, right? But then for her, she let me go to have a better future, which I really appreciate until today that um she let me come here. Yeah. And I know this is a tough topic, but around that time, your mom was also sick when this was happening, and when she was going through her illness what was going through your own mindset as your mom tells you that, and you had just talked about it. So, um, but I was wondering if you're able to share what that experience was like knowing that your mom was sick and here you are now making the decision to go to America in a place called Iowa, which is not a big, it's not like New York. It's not like California. It's a small country community. Although, I don't know how much more different um, than Cambodia in a sense because it's so rural. But I was wondering that whole mindset when you started your first year in school and and worrying about your family and especially with your mother who, you know, uh, was very sick at that time. I mean, coming from Cambodia, you know, when you come to the United States for the first time, like see all people have a nice house they have like clean water they have electricity that you know all day because <laughs> like compared to cambodia i mean we some we don't have enough food sometime and then we like electricity sometime off you know and <laughs> we need the candle and so on it's just it was it was very comfortable it's like um like lifestyle, my lifestyle changed completely in a way like, oh, it's more easier than before. I got to enjoy that uh, during my time in Iowa. Um, and you said Iowa was kind of small, right? I mean, compared to New York and, and oh, all. Yeah. But, but then it's big for me since I'm from Cambodia. And the first time I saw the cornfield on the way, um, like I took bus from Chicago to Iowa to go to school. I was like, wow, so they have a lot of corn so I can eat corn all day, <laughs> you know, because I really... Uh, I really like corn, so it wasn't, yeah, it was actually uh, something that attracted me. <laughs> so I got to go to school there and um, live like a really like normal life, I could, could say, like because in Cambodia, I I might not have a, like a normal life like other kids in a way that I have to work to support my family and also go to school. But here in the United States, I just need to focus on my school and I don't need to think about supporting my family, right? But then, you know, two months later, my, my mom, she um, had this sickness coming back. Um, it's uh, ovarian cancer. Mm. Yeah, it was honestly, it was so hard at that time that, you know, I came here all alone and 
I was um, I didn't know what what to do uh, this in this period of time because I don't have money. If, if I go back to Cambodia, I will not able to take my mom to a hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we were t- talking on Skype for like a couple of times and I kept promising her that I'm going to see her, but I don't even have money, you know, in my pocket to buy a flight ticket to go see her. Mm-hmm. Um, there were times that I cannot talk in the room because since I live with the other roommates, um, so, you know, I, I, I feel a little bit like it's a private conversation. So I go to uh, the bathroom. Sometimes the bathroom is, you know, required on like a certain time. So I just go to the bathroom because I don't want people to see me crying. Oh. Yeah, it was so hard to find cry sometimes. Um, so I have to keep crying in the bathroom. If I hear someone coming in, I will like, okay, I leave, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, it was very hard. And I, then I decided to tell my professor, you know, about like my professor is also one of the my sponsor to come study here in the United States. So I um, told um, him that I had to go back to Cambodia because my mom getting sick again, and this time is more serious. And I don't have any plan yet how to save my mom because I have no monies. Um, mm-hmm. But then the professor, you know, give me like comfort you know like saying that don't worry we'll, we'll find a flight for you to go back to see your mom wow I, I was so thankful like he got the flight ticket for me and my mom was very um sick that in the hospital and that one day that she was um passed out and like you know she cannot stand anymore you know but then on skype you know i have i i was so anxious i mean I was so scared I won't be able to see my mom again, you know. So, so I actually, I every time I Skype with her, I recorded a video. Oh. And you know, I I just I just have because I felt like I need to document it. If I might not see my mom again, but I have to record it, even though you know, because I'm when I get to Cambodia, I might not see her, so I have to record it every time I talk to her on Skype. And then, um. When I talked to her on Skype, she was so sick. She, mm. I said, I said, you know, I said, um, I will be there soon. Um, my the professor already got me the ticket, and I promise you that I'm going to, you know, take you to like a good hospital to help you, you know, to, mm-hmm. um, give her treatment again. And um, she cannot say much, but. I, you know, I was like crying, crying, and she's like, I was trying to hold it because I don't want to affect her feeling, you know. But then she said, the what she said was like, uh, uh, don't don't cry anymore. And um, she said, um, you should keep continue, you know, focus on your school and finish exam before you come here. Mm-hmm. You know? And he, the for the first time on that video Skype, she said. I love you, daughter. Oh. The first time ever in my life that I heard it from my mom. And then when I heard it, I was like, oh, I mean, I love you too, you know. I love you too. I love you very much. So, you know, please wait for me. I'll be there. And um, so I, um, that time, I think she was almost like, you know, gone, but she waited for me, you know. So I when I got into the airport, I like went straight to the hospital mm-hmm. and um, I went to see her and um, brought her apple from the United States, you, yeah. know, you know, kind of wanted her to eat, you know, taste the flavor uh, from the United States, but it was sour that she said. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like she asked me like, what is the plan? What is the next plan? Like, how I'm going to take her to the, you know, at the hospital, transfer her to like Thailand or Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I 
I was I was trying my best to comfort her, you know, even though like in my pocket I only have five dollars. Wow. Only five dollars, you know, travel from the United States to Cambodia only have five dollars. And when I pack, you know, like talking back, like when I pack to to see my mom, is that my friend would say, Okay, um, do you want to pack some clothes for maybe ceremony to see your mom last time you know something like that mm. i don't want to think about it so i did not pack any clothes you know mm-hmm. at all because i don't want it to think that my mom you know be gone i don't want to pack any clothes for any ceremony or funeral you know i don't want to so i didn't pack any all of those and then when i got to see my mom i um spent most of my time to um, you know, um, fundraising from my friends. Mm. Yeah, I was on computer all day to keep, you know, and um, I had to secure, you know, her that I, I will be able to to find a funding. And um, I've been trying to, you know, borrowing people money saying that, you know, when I got jobs, I will pay back, you know, because I have nothing. I cannot, I cannot like go to the bank and ask them <laughs> to borrow money or anything like that. But um, yeah, my mom was like so sick in the hospital. So she said the hospital cannot help her. So we, she did, she asked me that if she could go to the countryside. Mm. Yeah, so we went to the countryside for three days to kind of, you know, feel the fresh air. Yeah, And she eat all like her favorite food and something like that. Wow. She was having a difficult time to breathe because her uh, belly was so big like a lot of water in the belly it was so painful to see her suffering you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I got to spend time with her and she kept you know saying to me like no matter what happened you have to keep on going to school I mean you know in that time I mean she was in pain yeah. thinking about me you know and seeing that I feel like my mom had been you know sacrificed all her life just for me and for my 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 family my siblings because she always wanted to live in the countryside but she cannot you know she has to give up her dream and take care of us in the city yeah mm-hmm. and when she had passed um and thank you for sharing it's just so beautiful and so heartbreaking to hear you know you share your story but also finding comfort in having your meaningful relationship having a really meaningful relationship with your mom before she had passed but also having the strength of your own community uh, back in Iowa really supporting you really making sure that you were able to see your mother and to give her the resources that she needed to help keep her alive and even though unfortunately she succumbed to her illness I think the beauty that that of the effort, the caring that you gave her, and the fact that people saw how caring and how much they wanted to help you and help your mother, it's it's so beautiful to hear that story. So thank you for sharing that. I'm, I'm kind of moved to tears just hearing that right now. And um, when you, you had to finish the next few years uh, being in school, what was that like for you having to you know, make that promise to your mom that you're going to finish. Was it so difficult for you to finish the, uh, the next couple of years? Mm-hmm. Were you thinking about wanting to give up or did you find comfort in just, or in being inspired, at, you know, I can do this, I I can handle this. Uh, what was your feelings in the next few years being in Iowa like? It's it never easy, you know, when you actually lost someone who close to you. And my mom was like the closest person to me uh, as I growing up. Um, and coming to coming back to the United States, it wasn't easy uh, decision either because I have my younger sibling live in Cambodia, and I was very worried about them. You know that who gonna take care of them, and. Um, my dad said, you know, he's going to take care of my uh, siblings. 
So I was like, okay, and then I can come back to continue to school and uh, finish, you know, graduated and stuff. But I, okay, when I came back, I felt like I lost half of my soul. That's kind of the meaning I would give to it. It's like, I'm so empty. It feels so empty. And like, if I want to talk to my mom, I, I don't know where. I mean, I don't know where I should go. And, you know, it's like, I, I, I it's just that person completely disappear. But you still have, you know, remember her. And then just like, where is she? You know, I keep asking that question all the time. When I got back to uh, school, it's actually in the spring semester, I failed almost all the classes. Oh. Yeah, I was having a very hard time being adjust to the situation I was in. I would just like lock myself out. Like I just put myself in like a wall, like, you know, in between. I don't want it to talk to anyone. I don't want it to you know, communicate with anybody and I don't care if they think I'm not friendly. I don't care if they think I'm rude. I don't care anymore. It's just like, I sh I'm shutting myself down, uh, down, you know, to everyone. And then I start to fall sick and um, I lost like 10 kilograms during when I first got back. Yeah, 10 kilograms is probably like about 25 pounds, I think, something like that. Yeah, and it was dangerous, you know, wow. to, to lose wow. that much of weight. So I went to, you know, meet the, the, the nurse and they told me to keep, like, you know, eating, like, vegetables and uh, something nutrition, you know, and think something about something happily, you know, happy things. And so, you know, you will not have a lot of stress and so on. But it was so hard for me. I, I even lost my hair due to, like... The stress. Um, yeah, the stress I'm handling. Um, yeah, so it was. It's taking me so much time to adjust to the situation I'm in. I talk to like um, I, I often like express myself like with like writing. I write a lot, like how I feel um, and. Like the feeling that I lost my mother, and I made I even make make a film from it, like mm. inspire. I because I took like a film class, so I made a film about it. That uh, you know, the mother left uh, the daughter and due to sickness and so on. Um, so I start to create new hobbies for myself to kind of get over. The feeling of like very very sad mm -hmm. so I, I i do a lot of like different hobbies like um knitting crochet painting all of that by myself i wasn't really open to anyone at all i was doing that and then it's kind of helped me like comforts me in a way and especially play music yeah mm. and as you were do as you were grieving on the loss of your mother, um, it wasn't too long after that you would eventually finish school. And what was that feeling like when you uh, finished school? And and also this would lead you to being connected with the National Cambodian Heritage Museum and the Cambodian Association of Illinois. So I was wondering what finally got you uh, through. Um, the final moments of college and your feeling and what your feeling was like now that you had graduated and ready to move on to the next chapter in your life. So when I first graduated from college, I mean, the first person I should sing to, you know, would be my mother mm -hmm. and um, my grandmother as well. Um, they've been like supportive with me, you know, learning, um, and they would be proud if they got to see me graduate, you know, mm -hmm. from college because I'm the first, actually I'm the first um, person who graduated from college in my mom's family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so 
at that moment, I felt like my dream come true, you know, and it was hard, but I did it, you know. And then later on, after I graduated, I got connected to the Cambodian Museum. So I got to connect with the Cambodian Museum before when I got the uh, artist and resident reward from Elastic Art. Mm-hmm. So I went to the museum before in 2011 in July and then when I graduated I you know I went to Chicago like where the museum located and then talked to them what can I do you know like as a volunteer I wanted to do something for the community so I started out as a volunteer and then um, the next following year I got a um, artisan resident you know position full-time like um, work at the Cambodian Museum. Mm. And well, the National Cambodian Heritage Museum, for those who aren't aware of what it is and what it's about and where it's located. So it's in the Lincoln Square neighborhood. I serve on the board for the National Cambodian Heritage Museum since end of 2016. And so what the museum is about, it's about honoring uh, those that were lost and those who survived the Khmer Rouge killing field. Uh, it is the only museum in the United States or actually outside of Cambodia, I should say, around the globe that uh, focuses on the history of the Khmer Rouge killing fields. And also going further, it also is a place of per- preserving and celebrating uh, Khmer uh, culture, dance, music, arts. This is uh, a place where artists come in, Khmer uh, artists come in to uh, practice their art, to perform, to teach classes. This is a space for uh, our community in Chicago, but we have uh, Khmer folks from around the globe visiting uh, the museum, paying a tribute. Um, there's a, for the museum, and I, I, I will definitely be repeating this at, at certain points throughout the uh, season, uh, there's a history when you go through the exhibit about how the Khmer Rouge started and then, you know, the consequences and the tragedy of what had happened. And then towards the end, there is a memorial where uh, survivors will put the names of loved ones who were lost uh, in the uh, glass uh, plaque. Um, if if you get a chance, feel free to see it. Um, it, it is open from Monday through Fridays uh, during normal business hours, and there's usually Khmer classes going on, uh, traditional music performances on every Saturday mornings. If you haven't checked it out, it's uh, definitely a beautiful space. It's a, definitely a space that I feel very much uh, proud to be a part of. So feel free to listen and feel free to check it out when you get a chance and uh, you'll probably run into Nisa uh, performing there. Um, But getting back, uh, enough of my little spiel there, my little marketing spiel, but uh, being in the museum and, you know, working with the history of the Khmer Rouge in that space, how do you feel that it has inspired or impacted your work as an artist, especially with a community that um, dealt with so much trauma from uh, that particular era, and not only with uh, the trauma from the Khmer Rouge, but also with the refugee resettlement here in America. I know that that's a different experience for you um, because you did not come into America during the 80s that a lot of our families did, but what was your experience like in performing and working on your art in this particular space when it's also when it also involves tragedy okay so i came all the way here from cambodia alone by myself right so to work at the cambodian museum and connect you know with the cambodian community was is like a great blessings to me and especially I learned a lot when I worked with the survivors, the elders. Um, I got to do like a lot of reflections, you know, upon like after listening to their story, I try to uh, put myself in her shoe, in their shoes and think, you know, and trying to listen as much as possible. And as an artist, 
I before I came to the museum, I was like a professional musician. So I would um, travel around the country and uh, perform in like um, different places. And that's when I realized like, oh, as an artist, as a musician from Cambodia, I have the uh, role as like someone to share about Cambodian culture and arts that has been lost um, during the Khmer Rouge regime. And that's what, what that's, that's what I understand from that. It's like, oh, okay, as an artist, I have to keep uh, sharing the Cambodian arts and culture and two is preserving the Cambodian arts. Since you know that 90% of artists were killed. So for Cambodian classical music, uh, they were not written down like notation, like a Western or medicine, uh, music. So we have to learn um, like by memories you know, um, so memorization. Wow. Yep. So it's passed down from generation to generation like that. Um, but then when I got to work at the Cambodian Museum, I used um, like music as the you know way to connect with them. So I would play music and then they would um, sing to the song I play, especially it's all Cambodian um, traditional music and also some songs that from the 60s as well. And, and that bring them comfort. Mm. Yeah, that bring them a lot of comfort, bring them a lot of memories. It's like evoke like their childhood memories when they first when they was like in Cambodia with their family and used to heard that song before. And then now when I brought it back and play for them, they remember the good time. Remember the, 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 the happy time with their family. So I reflected about, you know, from that, you know, what they told me, that they felt much better, you know, when they listen to music and sing to with the music. Um, so I did, reflection and I think oh as an artist I don't think I have that just you know that one role to preserve I think my role my priority is I should use music to heal to help people who you know went through the uh, my regime you know, like all the traumatized you know event in their life to feel better like you know, to make them to help them you know feel better in a way that like before they might lost someone and had nightmare and like PTSD. Uh, PTSD, yes. Yeah, PTSD. Yeah. And then, um, so I think that as an artist or musician, preserving is important, but healing is even more important that we need to prioritize, you know, uh, for the healthy uh, Cambodian community. Mm. That's beautifully what I learned. Uh, beautifully said. And you are often a person that many elders and youths in our community look to as a performer and a teacher. And you've uh, described your experiences with some of the elders, but I know that you also share your experiences being a teacher to the young kids. I was wondering what your experience is like uh, teaching young uh, the, the youth and also with the elders. And there's a good story that you shared with me about the elders, especially with the, the women's group, uh, which I thought was very powerful. I was wondering if you could share that. So I work with the youth and kids as well by teaching them music and doing workshop. And I didn't expect that I'm going to learn so much from them, you know. Um, they would ask questions about Cambodia. They would ask questions about Cambodian music or Cambodian life, you know, in Cambodia. Um, so at that time, I thought of like, oh, I have the uh, kind of role to help them, you know, learn about their own culture to understand more about identity as Cambodian, which is Khmer, you know. And I 
you know, travel around the United States, going to like a farm and visit visited um different Cambodian community, you know, and always see the same issues in mm-hmm. the Cambodian community. We all, you know, struggles in a way like different way but then there's one issue that's very common in the Cambodian community was the um, the um, connection between the younger generation and older generation there was like the gap between them uh, that they weren't able to connect very well mm. and it's very sad I mean um, for the you know the family that fled here from Cambodia, you know, they hope to find a new life, a good family, a happy family. But even though they got here, you know, um, they, it's very difficult for them to connect. Like, for example, would be um, one of my friends, you know, in uh, Washington State, um, he wanted to know about, you know, Cambodia. So he would ask his mom that, Oh, how's Cambodia? And how do you get to United States? And then, you know, the mother like started to talk, right? But then just for like a few words, she kept crying. She kept crying and crying and she cannot talk anymore. So she cannot explain or tell the story to her son. And so her son became like more like lost that she cannot, he cannot like figure it out or like understand why her, why his mom feel this way until he worked for the Cambodian community uh, in Washington. And that's when he realized, oh, this is um, traumatized, you know, for them. And it was very hard um, for his parents, you know, to went through um, the Khmer Rouge regime. So back to, you know, the work I do with the museum. When they come to learn with me at the museum, they would ask questions, right? And then um, they would take um, like what they learned from the museum to tell their parents, you know, like, oh, what I learned today. And then they would ask their parents, like, oh, you know, I heard uh, teacher Nisa said this. Is it true? And then, you know, like, it's kind of bring more like a conversation for them, you know, like as a family, um, because if they don't learn anything about Cambodia, they would not have raised that question to their parents or their grandparents, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I, f- I feel like my work here is important, you know, to help them learning about their identity. Mm. It's it's kind of hard to believe that I've known you for five years, about five years now. <laughs> it's hard to believe, right? It's And seeing what your music what your teaching has done for our community it gives a lot of comfort and and there's not very many Khmer singers who also perform uh play instruments right and and that has spent so much time preserving the art uh, cre- uh bringing back resurrecting the history of cambodia's traditions of centuries right um it's really beautiful to see what you've done because I've seen you perform countless of times. Uh, I know that a lot of our survivors who have watched you perform, and I know that you've brought this up, uh, it gives comfort. It gives a sense of peace, calmness, and also nostalgia, you know, the beautiful sentiments that, uh, that brought back good memories of the past because most of the times their memories have also been clouded with darkness, sadness, anger, and to bring reminders of what music can really do to uplift specific, uh, peaceful, beautiful memories. Uh, I I think that's something that I've always been so drawn upon uh, when I hear your performances and how you articulate to audiences about what this music is about, what story does this song tell you, and how universal it is for all of us. Even if there are folks who are non-Kamaya, there's something that's so parallel to people's experiences with their own uh, trauma, with their own fond memories of love and uh, and dreams and hopes and inspirations. And now, uh, now that we're into 2020, 
and moving forward, what are you looking forward to this year and moving forward? What do you hope to do as an artist? What would you like to take on? What would you like to experience? What are your goals? So I think 2020 is a good year to do something even bigger and been um, more um, with different community in you know United States. And what I have been doing here in Chicago is like doing workshop and presentation, sharing about Cambodian arts, culture, Cambodian community, kind of represent uh, the Cambodia um, that you know for people to aware of the Cambodian history but then also have to uh, like realize that um, when the Cambodian uh, refugee came here, they had nothing. They had no documentation of like record, a certificate that they've graduated from, you know, anywhere. So when they came here, they like started like from zero, mm-hmm. you know, so um I want to be like here to represent Cambodia and Cambodian community, but then also um, to share what we have been doing here at the museum to other organizations over the United States for them to kind of uh, take on like, you know, the cultural and healing arts program, how we use arts to heal, for healing. Yeah, so um, that's one of my... um, plan my one of my goals and um another one i would want to do the tour around the united states like bringing music like you know to them and you know i think like music it's been it's been there for me it's been like my my best friend and the time i was like you know struggle there, there was like you know i wish someone would play music for me or something like that right but that time I was able just to do you know my own playing but um so I would wanted to do the same you know to to someone who struggle and you know share the Cambodian music to them you know yeah if you had to go back in time like nowadays like you like the current year right now if you had to speak to your 16-year-old self? What would you tell your 16-year-old you? Mm. If I would able to go back to tell my 16 years old. Uh, what would you tell your 16-year-old self um, right now? I would tell her to, you know, mm, don't lose confidence in herself, you know, even though, you know, actually she might feel um, dumb, she might feel stupid because people are telling her so, but I, she has a very um, uh, unique, um, you know, uh, way of like experiences she, that she's been through and I think she has to work on her strength more than, you know, her weaknesses and don't need to care about what others say, especially, you know, when it's make her feel down and so on. Yeah. I would tell her to feel more confidence. I want to say thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing thank you. Such, your, your beautiful journey. Um, as heartbreaking as it has been, and a struggle uh, to get to where you are. I've been so fortunate to get to know you as a friend and seeing the work that you've been doing for uh, for the Khmer American community here and also with so many fellow um, Khmer folks elsewhere. I am so mesmerized by your music by your performances. And I would tell anyone, if there's an opportunity to see uh, Nisa at the Cambodian Museum in Chicago, please do. Um, also, do you ever put up any videos of you performing on YouTube? 
I'm yeah, a lot of them. Yeah, a okay. lot, a lot of camp, like uh, music that I post on YouTube, and people knew me through that performance. Oh, sure. So I would definitely uh, recommend people to uh, check out her music on YouTube, and uh, I hope that you get to follow her music, and also I hope that you, to everyone, uh, get a chance to listen to uh, the music of Cambodia, uh, whether it's uh, from a hundred years ago to fifty years ago. 30 years ago to now, Cambodian uh, music continues to evolve, but the roots are still intact because it's intact through love, through labor, through honoring ancestors and, and honoring the people of Cambodia. So thank you so much for your time, Nisa. It's Thanks, been Randy. such a pleasure. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thanks for having me. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunby underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Thank you.